welcome to These Lads on Mental. My name is Gary. And I'm Neil. And our podcast is a lighthearted approach to normalise mental health. But before we start today's show, please listen to our disclaimer. This show is just a group of opinions and is not to be treated as medical advice. If you are struggling with mental health, please speak to your physician or reach out to a service such as Lifeline. Thank you. These Lads Are Mental recognizes the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation as the custodians and traditional owners of Sydney. We pay respect to their ancestors and elders, past and present, and value their continuing connection to lands, living culture, and integral contribution to the bright and inclusive future of this beautiful city that we call home. What do you want to ask? What do you want to tell? When I think of masculinity, I often think about a weight of having to be a particular way. I don't know if it gives you the freedom to be yourself. What guys will do, they'll make sure the car's right, they'll make sure the plumbing's right on the shed, they'll do all that stuff, but they don't do anything for themselves. I'm so much happier in conflict zones than I am actually being in normal society. It seemed like I've just had this fun kind of life, but when things went real bad, I'd lost all sense of reality. If you met 25-year-old John Anderson, would you hang out with him? Well, that's a good question for anyone, isn't it? Mm. Would, you, would you hang out with yourself? When I'm up, I'm so bulletproof. But when you're down, you can actually see what you're doing. <laughs> and that's depressing. the trailer to Happy Sad Man, a beautiful film which follows the lives of five men in Australia, created and directed by Genevieve Bailey, who was on today's show. The backing track that you heard is called It's Really Nice to See You by Nick Huggins. It's a beautifully told movie and it's a real honour to have Genevieve on today's show. Let's dive in. So Gary. Hey mate. Numero four. <laughs> That's number five, isn't it? Is a five. Fifth guest, uh, fourth guest, fifth episode. And what about this week? We've got Genevieve Bailey. Uh, another, another person who just makes you feel inadequate. <laughs> Read her bio. Ridiculous. Looking at her bio, I mean, over 30 movie awards in Australia, France, Spain, Brazil, USA, New York Times, Critics' Choice Documentary Award. Name one of Australia's top film and TV directors. Made over 40 films. I was actually supposed to do a voice act or a voice acting class yesterday. Honestly, for what? For like, have you got something lined up to be? Well, just trying to improve my diction whilst on our fabulous podcast show, which is on weekly. You're not taking that class yet? No, I haven't taken it yet. Obviously, as most people can guess by now. Like a lot of people say, obviously, and obviously, like you know, we're weirdo, and obviously, and obviously, and. And I remember when I was in uni before, we had a lecture and it was about that, whatever module was about presenting and pitching. And it was brutal. Like, put you on stage and then he would just cut through you. And I remember I said, obviously, and he said, stop, stop, stop. And he said, uh, why did you say the word obviously? And I was like, uh, I'm not sure. 
why do you think what you're presenting is obvious to me? This is the first time we've ever met. So how is it obvious to me? And I was like, uh, uh, uh. Chill out, mate. <laughs> I was like, uh, uh. It's like, don't cry. Don't cry. <laughs> I was like, ah. Uh. What's his name, mate? I'll go there and get him. Want me to say something? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got him after school. I was like, I got a few of the lads around the block. I was like, oh. what'd you say about me? Officer would have punched fuck at you now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, like he, he actually had some people cry in the class. It was really, but it was really good way to learn. Uh, well, uh, that's <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant, mate. He was there with, you know, whip in the background. What did you say? How <laughs> <laughs> ah. was school today? Oh, it was brilliant. Really, really enjoyable way to learn. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just tend to, I don't know. I don't mind that way of learning. I know a lot of people are different now, but someone just goes, you're doing a crap. Oh, job. yeah. Like blunt. I don't mind being blunt. I don't, I don't respond well to like fake praise, I hate that. Yeah. But some people do. I mean, that's that's the beauty of coaching and education. Everyone knowing your pupils, knowing your students, etc. That's one. That's one of the things I've actually spoken to my psychology about. There's actually a danger in when somebody gives you gratitude when it's not in context. You then it then devalues the whole thing. And if that happens, you can then go through this whole pattern of if anyone says anything to me, then I just ah uh, whatever, and it falls into that group of you need to accept the wins as well, which. I tend to personally, I don't do that. I, the losses hit me a lot. Like someone says something to me, just a throwaway comment. Oh, you look a bit tired today. You're like, oh, shit, I look really tired. What's going on? Is my diet? I'm not sleeping right. Whereas- There's only a of that shot for me. Don't say that, Gary. I'm going to have to burn. <laughs> but then on, on the flip side with positive stuff, when someone says something nice about me, I tend to get a bit embarrassed by it. Yeah, it's tough. I, I get that. It's pretty common in football, uh, again, football managers, it's pretty common. So when you often hear players as, say, a manager who doesn't give a lot of praise out, but when they do give that praise out, it's it's really worth something to them. So like an Alex Ferguson type, I'm not sure if he was one of those types, but who wouldn't give a lot of praise. But if he turns around and says, Sully, different class today, mate, it feels amazing as opposed to one of those gaffers who's just constantly going, amazing, superb, that's brilliant. Eventually, it just wears thin as if, like, yeah, everything's good. Like, I agree, I agree. There's a funny story about Ferguson actually. When United played against Crystal Palace that time, and Eric Cantona karate kicked that guy, I think they lost the game anyway. And the team played bad. And Ferguson went into the dressing room and he was like, You know, Giggs, you're a fucking shy, you know, Kane, you're a brutal, giving everybody the hairdryer thing that he's famous for. And then he turned to Cantona and he just went, oh, You can't do that, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Because he knew he couldn't hair dry Cantona, he wouldn't receive that well. And uh, I think that, that similar thing happened to me went to an awards do, and the whole team had to wear suits. And Cantona turned up with trainers or something like that, and everyone was going gigs or something like to Ferguson. Fuck's happened here, like we've all turned up with suits, and Cantona's turned up like that. And he's like, "Well, if you can play like Eric Cantona, you can wear what you want." <laughs> <laughs> that just shows how good Ferguson was as a manager. He understood. Yeah, my management, yeah, executive. Yeah understood how to treat you know different people at different times back to genevieve yeah on this week's show yeah we've got genevieve and she's the director and producer of an amazing i don't know if it's a movie or documentary it's one documentary thing. documentary as i i mean Doc- a documentary, movie. yeah it'd be interesting to see yeah how she classifies it but it's a story about a group of guys who have all various mental health conditions from bipolar to depression to anxiety and it's been going for a few years, and I know we're going to get stuck into the length and how it took that time. But, it, like, what did you think? We watched it this week, the movie. It's quite a 
I would say object. Well, not, I don't know if objective is the word, but it's a, it's a really good take on. It's not too overly positive. It's not too overly de- depressing either or negative. It just kind of hits. It's just very real. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that when I watched, it, I was going to, I was a bit hesitant. Like it was right before bed, and I was like, oh, this is going to be heavy hitting. I want to go to bed like sad, but it wasn't. It was, as I said, good insight. I think every character, although we're all different ages, I think some. I'm not sure. Did it even tell you the ages? I don't think it did. But it looked like a wide generation from like 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. You could sort of relate to everything at some point or at least one thing each person mentioned, whether it be from the anxiety standpoint or just feeling sad about certain things or comments or, or even feeling elated in the day-to-day things and how you, you react on a day-to-day basis. I was pretty, it was a good watch. Basically, if I finished the, the, the documentary thinking, I wasn't like buzzing, as I said to you on the phone, I wasn't buzzing, I wasn't depressed. I was just like, oh, it was a good watch, good insight, kept me engaged. Again, just a reminder, like, everyone's, there's so many people going through this stuff. Yeah, that was kind of the cool thing about it, right? It was just a real look of sharing stories as they were. There was no kind of mask behind it or in front of it, and it wasn't trying to be anything OTT. Here's five people who are navigating everyday life with these conditions, and their conditions, I wouldn't say, like, they were extreme, but they were definitely you know, on the spectrum, like, you know, some of the struggles they had were very real and you could see the highs and lows. But yeah, I just thought it was a very even keel approach to the subject. And yeah, as you said, you kind of, you didn't leave feeling exceptionally one way or another, but that was just a really nice way of sharing that story. Uh, I think the the little uh, snippet from the trailer says um, a movie, not about symptoms, about people, which I thought is... It's bang on. You're not watching that thinking about everything mm. you're going through. You're just thinking of the, you're connecting with the characters. Yeah. Going sort of getting their story. And again, a big thing of it is the case is male. It's, it's male dominant, isn't it? It's all about mm. how men are dealing with, which again, we'll talk to Genevieve about. I know, interestingly enough, mate, did you watch a documentary she'd done previously, the one she won all the awards for, I Am 11? No. Watch the trailer for that. It's about, she, she basically goes around the world and interviews 11 year olds. It's not uh, about mental health, but the trailer, I've not watched the film movie yet, but the trailer alone is so funny. You know, kids kids say some funny, funny things. So we're watching the trailer, it's just all 11-year-olds telling their story. And lo and behold, it's won all those awards worldwide. I'm going to give that a watch this weekend. Is that normalisation, you know, which is what we're always striving to do with this podcast. But all five of it, we call them characters. They're not really characters, they're real-life people. But there's such a variance in their age, as you say, their background, where they are in Australia, but also who they are. They're totally different people. Not one of them is the same at all. Scenarios are different, their jobs are different. But one of the commonalities around them is just what they're going through, I suppose, in terms of there is similarities in the fact that they are going through life with a mental health condition. Having said all that, at the end of the movie or the documentary, you'll see that they're all achieving such amazing things, even with those conditions. I think that's a really positive message. You can live life with these conditions and still be really happy. And you might have some bad days or down days, but it it shouldn't take over your life. Like you can still be, you can achieve so much regardless of your condition, which I thought was a really nice way to review it, you know? Hi, brought me spot on. Very good. And by the way, I don't think we've even mentioned the title of the movie. (laughs) Can anyone guess? (laughs) (laughs) So the movie's called Happy Sad Man, and we'll get we'll get all the details off Genevieve when she comes on. And the music, again, the music is different class in it as well. We've got some insights to that as well, which again, Genevieve will touch on. Also, Sully's got 4,033 questions lined up for Genevieve, so it should be interesting. 
I know every week I think our episodes are getting longer and longer. Jeez, <laughs> we should be dialing it down. Sorry, guys. What are they? They went from a lot to like eight questions, and then you've decided to ramp it back up again. Well, as I was re-watching it, because I actually saw the movie when it premiered in Sydney. That's why I was interested about it, because I, I saw it a few years ago. So I don't know whether they're re-releasing it or COVID impacted how it was distributed. But when I rewatched it, it's like anything, right? And she actually, in our preparation for this week's show, Genevieve even said it herself, every time she watches the movie, it always brings up something new for her as well. And I totally could relate to that because I was just fervently writing notes. I was, oh God, that's amazing. Oh, wow, I've got to ask about that. And then when I got to the end of it, I, I was thinking, gosh, what about the characters? You know, it was just interesting to find out. I feel like we could do three or four different shows off the back of this alone because the characters in themselves, if you watch the documentary, are just so fascinating in their own right. And as I said earlier on, they all have different conditions. So, you know, one struggles with bipolar. So we could even have a whole show on that, which we probably will at some point in the future. But yeah, I just felt like there was so many good things in there. It's like, ah, oh, World Mental Health Day is referenced in it, which is not too far away. And probably by the time this show gets aired, we'll only be a few days away from that. So I was like, oh my God, that seems serendipitous that here we are interviewing Genevieve when around the same time as the movie was shot. I'm also interested just to see what the characters are at now. Where are they? What are they doing? At the end of the documentary, I won't ruin it for anybody, but it, she gives a little bit of an insight of where they were in the immediate aftermath of doing it. And there were some really amazing things to come out of it. So, yeah, I wonder what they're doing now. I also wonder, where's Genevieve? <laughs> oh, she's five minutes away. Just having a dance. What a life. Oh, she's in Melbourne, aren't she? So... They've just, she's just had an earthquake. They're going through, there's protests, probably raining, as it always is in Melbourne. Yeah, cold. <laughs> Haven't had the AFL final. Oh, is that not this weekend? Supposed to be this weekend? I, I, think, I think it is on this year, yeah. There's a lady called Kate Roffey, who is the president of Melbourne Demons. And my very first roommate when I ever came to Australia was a guy called Liam. I think I've already mentioned him on the show. He's You're getting on. Every episode you talk about Liam. He's getting an awful amount of shout-outs, but he's a very decent uh, Aussie bloke. But he follows the demons, and my I should really have researched some of this before I brought this up. But as far as I'm aware, they haven't won the Premiership for a while, and, and I think they're in the final. And Kate is the first female president of any AFL club, so shout-out to Kate. I had the pleasure of being in the same building as her in Melbourne for a few years and she was just a fantastically talented woman and it just shows well hopefully how much we're progressing even from a sports stance and you probably know as well Gary that especially in those male dominant sports it's about time that there was a bit more of an equal gender balance especially in the leadership roles Kate has shown that and now so hopefully they go on and win it and Liam is, is a happy camper yeah fingers crossed mate Are you gonna be watching it uh... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, pretend live, but I was like, ah, oh, no, it will probably bite me in the ass at some point. What was the score? Uh, <laughs> I will be rooting from my armchair in a different room, but hope you win case. <laughs> but what about that for an intro? Genevieve is having a dance at the moment before she comes on the show. It's a nice way to warm up. That is super. I wonder what sort of dance thing she's got. I mean, the only thing I know about Genevieve from is obviously seen on the documentary. Mm. What do you reckon our style is? She's obviously so talented even in the credits i was watching she directed the documentary she produced it i'm pretty sure she was the cinematographer as well and she might have even edited part of it just unreal and when you watch it it's so beautifully shot with so many different camera angles and from my professional career i've been across a lot of content production and 
it's just a beautifully made movie you feel like you just have to watch it in the cinema i remember the first time i watched it popcorn like it just it was just a really nice way to do it so yeah it'd be interesting just to see how she comes across she's very bubbly very warm in our chats with her so far this week and we actually threw her in at the last minute because <laughs> i'll actually hold my hand up i stuffed the roster up a bit originally we were gonna shoot and then try and get the podcast out the next day but you know life gets in the way so we kind of have a one week delay but then i realized it was kind of one week out so someone who we thought was supposed to be coming on today was actually next week so it was a bit of a scramble Gary was uh, preparing all these questions for the guests this week and I was like um I actually think that person's on next week uh showbiz right showbiz that's showbiz is sorry I was also late to this today's episode I was but if anyone knows me I have a tendency to be are you late are you is that you are you always late a little bit tardy I was way worse when I was younger I can't remember you being late at football I don't know maybe you were Nah, I racked up the old fines a few times. Pretty sure you were the fine master, mate, so you probably got away with murder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have accounting expertise there. I might have dropped off the odd $5 here and there from my uh, tally. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you did. No, I was bad. I was actually bad when I was younger. And Oh, hello. Speak of the devil. Good morning. Hi, good morning. How are you doing, guys? How are you doing, all right? I'm good. Sorry for the delay. I had to have a little dance, which I'll explain later. <laughs> uh, we're just discussing that. We'll just try to work it. What's that? A style of dancing you were doing? I don't think it's got a name. It's just, <laughs> it's just the Genevieve. I recommend it. It's very fun. That reminds me of Gary and I were chatting before, just ahead of today's uh, show, and we were talking about John and how in the documentary, you know, you chat to him at six thirty in the morning or something like that, and he's like, "Oh, I've already been up. I've done a yoga session. I've done some chanting for a while. I lit a fire. I had breakfast." <laughs> We were like, I know there I was getting up before the sun was up, thinking I would catch some early morning footage of John, but he'd already had about a three hour day by the time I was awake at 6 30. <laughs> what a man. To start every podcast, we just like to ask, I guess, what we've been up to recently. But obviously, lockdown is limited and everyone's pretty much up to the same stuff of going big long walks and drinking far too much coffee. But what have you been up to? Believe it or not, Gary, I've never had a cup of coffee in my life. Well, and yeah. I'm from Melbourne and I'm a filmmaker. So this is very strange thing about me and yeah I just I've always had a lot of energy and I think when I became of coffee drinking age and everyone was drinking it I just I used to serve it I used to make coffee but I just never started drinking it so I've, I've actually um yeah never started I have a really great capacity to sleep anytime anywhere including <laughs> in uncomfortable places and airplanes so I thought if I start drinking coffee I might mess that up so <laughs> so long answer to your question I have not been drinking coffee but I've been spending a lot of time outdoors and for me you know lockdown as long as I'm near nature and as long as I get a bit of outdoor time and time with dogs and good music in my ears I'm, I'm yeah pretty okay so I've been I've been doing pretty well Oh, quality. I'm a bit disappointed you're one of those people who can sleep on aeroplanes. You are my nemesis. I, every time I'm on an aeroplane, oh, I'm not on just look across the plane and you just see that person just completely zonked from the day they lift off all the way through. And I'm lying crumbled up like a contortionist trying to, try to get a sleep nightmare. Sorry, I shouldn't. I've realised that. Duh. I shouldn't brag about being able to sleep. I know it's a really big challenge. For a lot of people, including people in my family, but the older I get, the more I realise it's it's a gift that I can, even in difficult times, somehow Gosh. switch off and and burrow into a bed. Yeah. yeah. Sorry for bragging. Sorry, I'm totally not a bragger. <laughs> 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 for bragging. 
Well, Jen, we're here to talk about Happy Sad Man. What a movie. Well, first question, actually, do you call it a movie or is it a documentary? We were arguing the toss before you got on. I call it a film. Sometimes a documentary film or a film. Yeah, call it what you want. I call it Happy Sad Man. It's got its own pulse, I reckon. It's sort of different to other things. Yeah, it's a documentary film. It's a documentary feature length film. So it's about an hour and a half long. Yeah, there's a lot going on in an hour and a half, as you guys probably noticed when you watched it. Yeah, we were going to ask if for any of the listeners, would you be able to give us a quick synopsis of what's entailed inside the film? I'm just looking around my table to try and find out if I've got a flyer. I've got millions of these flyers around normally. I was going to read the synopsis, but here we go. It's on my Happy Sad Man is a charming and uplifting insight into the lives of five very different Australian men. Happy Sad Man gives unforgettable voice to the complex emotional landscapes we can all traverse. Touching, funny and tender, this must-see documentary is set to shine a light on and change the dialogue around masculinity and mental health today. Yeah. I could say it in my words, but that's pretty succinct, I reckon. I'm sure you spent a lot of time to get all those words nice and succinct, so thanks for that. It's actually interesting because I've actually seen the film before when it premiered, which was a few years ago, and you mentioned actually at the end, that, or even when we were chatting, that every time you watch it, it brings up something new, and I definitely could relate to that as we watched it this week, looking back on it, and I thought, oh, God, you know time goes on you might forget some things but there was a lot of stuff in there that I I was just writing notes constantly going oh my god that's amazing oh that's great yeah maybe you could walk us through that and how it kind of can give you some something new every time you watch it sure yeah happy sad man explores the lives of five different guys from a range of different backgrounds and age groups and they're people that I consider really good friends so it's I guess to describe to anyone listening what it is it's not a sort of factual talking head documentary about mental health. It's not a clinical feeling film. It's very intimate and very personal. And the reason that is, is because the guys in the film know me and trust me and have been very generous with sharing their stories. Yeah, when I was making Happy Sad Man, my initial inspiration was my friend Johnny, who on the face of things, you know, were very, very different people. I met him when I was in film school and he was more than twice my age. He's nothing like it anyone I know in my family. He's pretty out there, pretty intense. He lives with bipolar and experiences really high highs and really low lows. And for me as a young film student, putting a camera in his face, it was like baptism by fire. It was such an intense experience. But I thought, wow, I just feel like in Australia and many other countries around the world, we just don't see men of this vintage talking about their emotions, right? I feel like people need to see this. So I made a short documentary about Johnny back then and we became friends ever since. And there's a part of the film where I say that John thinks that we're both fun opportunists. We're both people who seek out fun in life and, and love having fun. And he says, other than that, we have nothing in common. And it's kind of true. Like we're, we're very different people. I would say maybe, you know, to coin the phrase good cop, bad cop, I'm a really good cop. And he's, he's a really bad, challenging cop. He can be very provocative. He can, you know, really rub people the wrong way a lot of the time. I'm sure everyone listening knows someone like Johnny or maybe you yourself or like Johnny. He's full of charisma. He's a curious person. He's really creative. He's very cheeky and he's challenging. And I feel like I, as a young woman, thought to myself, you know, I want to see more stories of more diverse stories from men. I often think about the men that we see in the media or the men governing our nations or making decisions for our society. They're not the sort of guys I'd want to hang out with. 
like maybe you can relate <laughs> and I think around the world you know a lot of the time we see people on tv or politicians and we're thinking you're not my vibe I would not want to hang out with you I don't trust you I don't believe you I don't share values with you and so as a filmmaker I decided it's such a big mission to make a film and I have to be really careful what I make a film about and I decided that I want to make happy sad man so that men and women and all genders can see a more diverse depiction of of guys sharing their emotional world. That's uh, one of the you mentioned people not really talking about that from from John's standpoint, like especially that elder generation. I thought one part in the movie that was amazing was when Ivan went to the sort of men's club and the random bloke. I can't. I don't know the guy's name. I don't know if you mentioned his name in it, but he approached you. Yeah, Dad. And that was. That was amazing. That was so cool. Because again, relating to not necessarily my dad, my dad, again, still older generation, but thinking of my grandpa, there's no way they would discuss that sort of thing. There's no way. And it was almost yeah. like a light bulb went off in his head and thinking, hold on here. Is this happening to me? That was a, a pretty special and surprising, in some ways happy, some ways sad moment for me in the film. Because as you said, I was out a men's shed in a regional town in Victoria, in Australia. And Ivan, one of the guys in the film, is a rural outreach worker, which means he basically goes out into the country, speaks to a lot of farmers about the troubles they're having, whether it's financial or emotional or relationship issues or mental health issues. And we were in this men's shed, which is such a man cave. Like there's no women in there. Like I had to get permission <laughs> to go in with my camera. And this guy approached me and he was 86. And, you know, there was no one else around at that point. He sort of, he sort of wandered up to me and said, oh, this depression business, how, how, do you, how do you know if you've got it? <laughs> and I was like, whoa, this is a lot because I sort of want to answer his question, but I also sort of want to film him and I also want to put a microphone on him if he's okay with that. And I also want Ivan to do this conversation with him because Ivan's really qualified, mm. but in the film you see real time what, what unraveled in that moment. And it was a good reminder that even people at 86, like it is never too late to gain an understanding of how you're feeling and why and what you can do about it. So yeah, a lot of people comment, Gary, on that scene that you've mentioned in, in the film because it's really moving. And a lot of people, I think it makes them think of their parents or their grandparents and times gone by where, you know, it was very much encouraged to not talk about those difficult emotions. So I'm glad that things are starting to change and they need to change more. Yeah, it, it opened up even Sue, my wife and I were watching it as well this week. And that scene in particular, we both looked at each other and said, oh, because I know he'd lost his wife before. And we both looked at each other and said, oh, God, I hope we just go out together at the same time, because it's one of those things, isn't it, when you're later in life and you maybe one of your partners goes and it's a sad phase of your life. But also, as you said, he was 86 as well. I was like, oh, my God, he's looking pretty chipper for 86. And I love the phrase that you mentioned. It was one of the things we we're going to bring up later on. But every town needs to have an Ivan. <laughs> I just absolutely love that. He was a legend, big Ivan. <laughs> oh, yeah. totally. Ivan just has this capacity. Like he's also in his 70s. I don't know if you can tell oh, that's that. That's surprising, yeah. Yeah, and he's got so much energy and that's coming from me and I have a lot of energy and I'm a lot younger than Ivan. But he just has this real belief that conversations and connecting with people can actually change, not only change lives, but can save lives. And Ivan's been doing this sort of work for a long time and with very stoic farming communities that are not necessarily, you know, opening the door to let him in. But he goes over there, he'll have a cup of tea, he'll talk about the new tractor, he'll chat about the, how the crops are going. You know, he knows how to make people comfortable. And I think Ivan and I, we have to share that skill in making people comfortable because 
whether you're working as a counsellor or you're making a film, if people around you are not comfortable, it, it's an issue. So, yeah, Ivan and I get along really well. He's he's very cheeky and he's really proud of being part of the film and he um, he can see he can see the effect it has on people and he himself gets very emotional every time he watches the film. Every time we've done a screening around Australia, if he can come, he'll come. And I say to him, oh, let's have a coffee or not a coffee. <laughs> let's have a, a tea during the screening. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah. And then he watches the whole film and then we get up to do a Q&A and he's teary, you know, and he's like, what, six foot three, six foot four, big guy in his 70s emotional and he takes a little moment and composes himself and then he does the Q&A like a boss but I've said to him Ivan you don't have to watch the film every time like you've seen it so many times and the last time we had a screening he said oh no no no, I won't watch it this time we'll go and have lunch and then as soon as the first 10 minutes plays I normally nick off and go for a walk and come back for the end of the film but he just watched the whole thing again I said Ivan what are you doing because I can't not watch it I just miss the guys so much I just want to watch them on screen they're like family and he himself feels very connected with the other guys' stories on screen. So it's quite a beautiful experience to make the film, but then to distribute it is a whole nother layer of beauty for me to see it experienced. How, lo- how long uh, did it take to film the whole thing? Yeah, so the earliest interviews with Johnny, who was the initial inspiration for the film before I decided to add other stories, were seven years before the film was finished. So it was a seven-year period. Wow. of making the film which is a big chunk of my life which is why I, I joke slash really mean that it's important that I'm careful what I make films about because they do become yeah a really big part of my life and I'm I'm proud with the choices I've made and and that these guys are people that I do want to share you know my life with. One of the things we when I was watching I was like yeah he looks a bit different I wonder what was the period like in which it was shot um, but I suppose it's all about the characters right and we were chatting before about even though they are very different. So different characters who all have different various uh, conditions around mental health. But one of the commonalities they have is how they're all, you know, plotting through life and doing their thing, which was a nice thing to, to see. But it is all about the characters. Maybe you could give us a quick one through from John to Jake to David to Grant. We have our personal favorites, but we might say it at the end. Yeah, could you bring listeners through each person? That would be great. Yeah, I'd love to. So I started shooting with Johnny, who, as I mentioned, lives with bipolar. He's a musical cheeky, all sorts. (laughs) I also have a really close friend who lives in Sydney named David Capra, who's an artist. He lives in Western Sydney. His family background is Ukrainian and Italian, and he's been raised here with a very close relationship with his grandmother. And he's an amazing artist. And every time I would talk about David, friends of mine, you know, would say, oh, which one's David? Have I met him? And I would say, you would remember if you'd met David. <laughs> and so I, um, I have this great friendship. It's really quite absurd. Like David and I just love laughing at absurd things. Even during lockdown, we've had this capacity to connect with each other and just have the most ridiculous conversations and laugh. And he's that friend that really big ears. He listens. He's funny. He's empathetic. And I realised that David's experience of happiness and sadness was quite fascinating and I wanted to include him in the film. And then my friend Jake, who had initially we'd met on a film set that I was directing, that he was shooting a film with me years ago, he, he left Australia and embarked on a career as a war photographer. So it was primarily based in Afghanistan and Syria over the last 10 years. So working in conflict and post-conflict zones. And when he'd come back to Australia, we'd catch up and 
have dinner and hang out. And I would think, wow, Jake's experience, like living in these war zones is really intense. And his experience of happiness and sadness is also something that I wanted to explore. So that's when Jake became part of the, the film. And then I remember looking on Instagram once and seeing this photo of these guys in these ridiculous fluorescent, like fluoro, or if you're not Aussie, you'd say neon colored clothing in the surf. So bright suits, like onesies, crazy hats, surfing in Bondi Beach. And I thought, what is this? And I wrote to my friend who posted the photo and he said, oh yeah, that's my friend Grant. You've got to meet him, he's amazing. So I read a bit about Grant and his story of living with bipolar and this community that he had started called Fluoro Friday, where people dress up and wear brightly coloured clothes every Friday morning and meet up at the beach to show to show solidarity for what is essentially often a very invisible illness, mental illness. So yeah, met Grant and instantly knew he was going to be part of the film and he was happy to. And then my composer, Nick Huggins, who wrote the beautiful music for Happy Sad Man and also the music in my other films, like I Am Eleven, he um, has a brother, uh, two brothers, and one of his brother's girlfriend lived out in regional Victoria. And I said, oh, I'm keen to meet someone who lives out in the land, you know, for this film. And he said, oh, yeah, I'll get in touch with her. And she rang me up and said, you've got to meet Ivan. So I drove out to the country and met Ivan. And within about 10 seconds, I thought, yep, this is my man. This is <laughs> Ivan's got to be in the film. So, so yeah, I knew three of the guys very well before production and then met two of them during the production. And out of, out of the guys, was, it, was there a conscious decision to try and get a wide breadth of different conditions or did that all kind of just like fall into itself? Yeah, it just fell into itself, I guess, in a way. I'm very mindful that if this was a 60 Minutes episode or if this was a segment on, you know, a news program or TV show, you'd see like a slice of life, like you'd see maybe 5, 10, 15 minutes of someone's story and maybe they would zip around Australia and try and find people who are very highly represented in certain areas of mental health issues. Like we know that our Indigenous Aboriginal population in Australia, our you know LGBTQ community, young people, people living in regional areas are at a higher risk of mental health issues and suicide. So whilst I was aware of that, I was also mindful that I didn't want to just canvas Australia and pick some strangers that I don't know and ask them to be part of the film. I wanted the film to be very intimate and personal stories. So as it turns out, I have found diversity in the guys that are in the film you know, through their experiences with anxiety, bipolar, psychosis, depression, PTSD, and lots of other wonderful parts of their personality which are explored in the film. And as you said, Neil, the film shows the breadth of their character and their experience as opposed to just focusing only on their mental health challenges. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic you mentioned there because diversity, which obviously is an amazing thing, forcing diversity also doesn't necessarily work either if it doesn't feel genuine and I think you've achieved that in your movie um, because as you listen to those characters you almost feel like well you are part of the story yourself you you know you can hear you throughout it what was that like from your perspective even just listening to the stories as they unfolded evidently live in, in your environment because you were just recording and did that, how did you feel going through it? Did it have an impact on you? Like when they were saying these things to you in the moment, like what was that like? Was there a weight? Yeah, definitely. Before I started making documentaries, I was really passionate about drama and comedy films and experimental films and music videos. So I'd write scripts and I would knew what I would know what's going to happen start, middle and end. 
And even though I loved that creatively, when I started making documentaries, I realized actually being in the moment and the challenge of having to really listen and be spontaneous and be responsive, it's way more challenging and I like a challenge. So documentaries became far more interesting to me because I had to I had to make sense of the story in post-production more so than writing it to start with. Mm. So in those moments, like there's some very raw moments in the film, especially when John was unwell, um, very, very unwell. And to be honest, I never imagined that I would be in my films. I kind of cringed. I remember when I lived in London and I would watch documentaries and it would be like footage of a young kid playing football. And they'd say, this is Jimmy. Jimmy <laughs> loves football. Jimmy is walking to the park. Jimmy is meeting up with his friends. And I was like, oh my gosh. No. <laughs> They're just telling me everything that I'm watching. Sorry about my bad British accent there. Was it all right? Was it bad I enough? Thought, I thought it was Italian. <laughs> <laughs> very Tarantino. Ta- Tarantino always always recognise his movies because he always just pops up. Yeah. We bang there. As, a, as an actor. Well, well, <laughs> I'm not very Tarantino. <laughs> what I would say is that when you're having these conversations with people, really real, raw conversations, the idea of myself not being there and pretending I'm not there, it's just not authentic. As you said, Neil, when you're having these sort of conversations, it's important that the audience feels that they're real. And so rather than trying to edit my voice out all the time, mm. I just left it in there. Like, I don't like the sound of my own voice. Um, mm. Lots of people don't. But I just thought, well, the story makes more sense and it's more personal. So. Yeah, it, you definitely feel that. I think they're almost like you could hear your voice in the right moment where it was, it was the nudge that kind of led to, let's say, the next comment that one of the, I keep calling them characters, <laughs> the real life people, but... Yeah, it was interesting to see how you were able to bring that out. I mean, was it difficult for you to get, and you said you knew three out of the five, but was it still difficult to get them to open up? Was there a lot of prodding first or did you feel like that came quite naturally for them? It's interesting. A lot of people, when they come to screenings, they ask this question and I always kind of, I answer it as best I can, but often I handball it over to the guys to answer in in their words. And I guess they're not with me here today, but what I would say is that David often comments on how he sort of forgot the camera was even there because he was so used to having chats with me and me concentrating on the conversation, not just the technology. Because as a filmmaker, you can get really geeky in terms of thinking about the gear and like the shot and, you know, like trying to make it look really pretty and capturing this and I'll just stand there. And yeah, I'll just hold, hold it there. Can you do that again? Hang on, can you do that again? Yep, can you just turn around? Can you cross the road? And I just never want to be directing them to the point that they're thinking so much about that. I just want to be having chats. And my sound mixer, Tristan Meredith, who at the end of the edit process makes all the sound as smooth and even as, as possible, he often says how he feels like when he watches my films, he's just hanging out with people mm. and he feels he's actually in the room with them hanging out. And that's a big compliment to me because I, I want you to feel like you are with them mm. and you're with us and you're involved in the I conversations. So the scene, um, the scene with David before he's about to go on national TV, I think really hits home with what you've just said. You feel like you're almost in his living room with him and his mum. I think it is. And, you're in the background and you're, you're giggling over like these jokes between the two of you and you just, it's just an amazing scene. I, I'm just going to say it now, David was kind of my favourite. So David, if you're listening, just keep doing what you're doing. You're just unreal. We need more Davids in the world as well as um, Ivan's and all the guys. 
But uh, Gary, who was your favorite? I think David was just so creative. Tina, his dog and the fragrance. And he's an artist, as you said. And I think he was doing something with the MCA. And I was like, oh my God, like this is just unreal stuff. And even how he speaks through his own, how he coped with anxiety and um, panic attacks. And then to see him present. And I think he went on to do a TEDx show. And it was like, these guys, yes, they have serious conditions, but they're all living life and they're all doing amazing things. And he kind of, for me, was my favorite. But Gary, who who was yours? I mean, to be honest, David, watching the show, David and John made me, John's character. I love something about watching old guy, the old guy, the sort of careless old guy who's like just whistling around and just doing his own thing and doesn't take, just bees himself. I love the way John spoke. How he's like, well, my kids don't let me play the ukulele, play the banjo in the, the wedding. And I don't care. He's sitting eating like a raw capsicum, just loving life. And they just, and this guy's an absolute hero. And even when his son was singing in the kitchen and he's just singing away. And well, we were we were saying, Genevieve, John, we were going to ask, I know you shouldn't ask someone's age. What age is John? We were looking at him jogging. And I said, if you didn't see his, his, his head, you'd swear he was like some pro athlete. He just looks so <laughs> limber. He's doing yoga. He's singing songs. He's cooking. He's so eloquent in how he speaks. I mean, he's a very talented man. Yeah, John is extremely fit. As you say, limber, if I cut his head off, metaphorically but not metaphorically if I filmed him seeing his head um, yeah I mean he he eats very well he's very active and then sometimes he's really not active when John's in a depressive state he will stay in bed for 23 hours a day you know so John it's very hard to sum John up in a podcast <laughs> but um but yeah John is in his 70s how old is he now so he's 70 I think Ivan's 75 and Johnny is John's born on the 22nd of June 1948 so he's 73 wow yeah um, I think that and it's boring you know like I think it's as you said it's boring to see how pretty he is oh yeah he that's I think that was one of the things that stuck out I was talking to my partner watching it. I was like this guy's a legend look at him he's making files he's cooking food he's jogging he's every time he was doing something he was always outside always active well, this guy's just and his, his little hat on just like a wee trendy old guy and he was yeah. very I mean of course it was about mental health and he, you could tell he had things he was fighting but he did I don't know he just he just went with that old guy when I was younger so street, who would just be whistling walking down the street just who you just yeah. brighten up your day by saying hey morning mate he'd be like morning they'd happily chat to you just one of those guys he also had so many lovely nuggets. There were so many one-liners that he said that really hit home. One of them, he was, he was talking about depression and he was saying how a lot of people are scared of depression and the depressive side, let's say, of, of you as a person. But he was saying, I just see it as it's a glimpse at my dark side, almost as if we all have that little bit of a dark side and it's not to be afraid of it, acknowledge it in a sense. And yeah, he, he had so many amazing things. I mean, it must have been some experience just listening to him, just being in his presence. Oh, I mean, he's one of my closest friends and, you know, Happy Sad Man, the title came from my friendship with Johnny because, as I say in the film, he's at once the happiest and saddest man I've ever met. Hmm. And I think that's the thing with John is I could have made a whole film just about John. Like, he's full of so much, so many stories. He's a very illustrative and provocative storyteller but I realized when I was making the film when I thought about David and Jake I thought well actually if I include a few more stories this film you know it can resonate with different people in different ways and so I didn't go overboard I just stuck with five guys but 
yeah, I mean, John, John has so many stories. His sister, as he describes in the film, you know, when he was a teenager, he came home from school and was told that his sister had, his big sister had ended her own life, which is extremely traumatic. And, and John was sent to cricket training the next day. John didn't go to the funeral. And to be a 14 year old guy, you know, who's under a lot of pressure to be, to excel, to be the captain of the football team, to be the captain of the cricket team, to be academically strong. You know, a lot of people listening would be able to relate to having a family where there's that pressure. But yet when someone dies in that family, there wasn't necessarily, you know, as John said, no one knew what to do when someone suicided, like no one knew how to handle that. So there's a lot of tragedy in John's life, but there's also a lot of a lot of joy and a lot of opportunity for us as viewers and as friends to learn by by what he has to share. It's interesting. Do you think we do enough? You know, if you think about life and death and and let's say the elderly, we've had this, I've had this thought before about we don't do enough as a community to embrace it and accept it, particularly people who, you know, let's say go into the latter stages of life versus let's say indigenous communities, which seem to be way more integrated in terms of people as they grow through all the different ages. Like, do you think there is a bit of an issue there, let's say for Western culture that we don't embrace that enough and we don't celebrate that enough versus some of the more indigenous communities? Yeah, I think, you know, it obviously varies from family to family, but broadly speaking, I think a lot of people would agree that in Western culture, we're not necessarily experiencing a rich tradition or history or rituals around death and grieving. And so we often don't know what to do. And part of my inspiration for making this film was because when someone's unwell, whether it's cancer, whether that's depression, whether it's, you know, someone's had a stroke, we don't know what to do. So sometimes we do nothing and we worry about mucking up. I think that idea of like doing something wrong can be really fit. You know, we fear mucking up basically. So I'm sure everyone listening knows someone who's been unwell or is unwell right now, or even you're struggling right now, understandably during lockdown. And you just don't know what to do because there's not a rule book. There's not a guidebook. And we used to have, I mean, I'm really passionate about community and we used to have, we used to live in communities that were a lot closer and had, you know, uncles and aunties and grandparents. And yeah, I'm sure there's aspects of that, which would have been a bit irritating <laughs> at times, the closeness, but actually we had, we had, we had mentors and guides and people who could help us understand these different rites of passage. Often we talk about rites of passage for young men, you know, coming into puberty and growing up in adolescence and, and not having, not having anyone to support through that time. And I definitely think that grief is similar. When I was 22, my dad passed away and he was only 56. And, you know, 56 is young. Like I saw him in a lot of pain. He was very sick. He had MS, but it was cancer, actually, prostate cancer that spread to his bones, you know, that ended up taking his life. And my, I had friends who didn't call me after he died. I had friends who didn't come to the funeral. And I kind of wondered, when am I going to hear from my friends? And I often didn't hear from them. And that in itself was quite heartbreaking for me because I thought, why am I not hearing them? And my mum would say, well, they're probably busy with uni or they've probably got other things on. And I thought to myself, no, I never want to be too busy to not be there for a friend. I I was really, really set in that. And I think Happy Sad Man is a big extension of that in, in exploring how can we better be there, not only for ourselves, but for our loved ones and for our mates. Because a lot of the time, you know, we don't know what to do. So as I said, we do nothing. I totally understand where you're coming from. And especially Gary and I, Scottish and Irish, 
when we think about that and people passing away, it was just in the pub three days and you get absolutely hammer drunk and just try and put away all your emotions. And But then when I, one of the really lovely stories when I came to Australia first was a neighbor of mine passed away and he was only 50 and he was quite young as well. And I went to his funeral in Victoria and it was about two hours out of Melbourne. And I was blown away by this, right? Like I laugh about it because it was such a beautiful way to celebrate his life. But the funeral was in a basketball arena indoors. He had Diana Ross was the opening song music when it came in. She's there. (laughs) (laughs) He had a presentation of all photos of him throughout life, living life, drinking beers. And and then they had this lovely part of it where they said, does anyone want to come up and just talk about him? And people just randomly came up and told all these, regaled all these really nice stories. What a brilliant way to celebrate your life. Rather than being very, you know, morbid and everything is sad, sad, sad. Like it was a celebration of his life, which was a really nice way to do it. And maybe we could all take a leaf out of that book in terms of celebrating life as much as looking at the the sad part of it. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've, I think ever since I was probably like 13 or 14, I've thought about what songs I want played at my funeral. I love music like so much. And um, for a long time, my funeral song was going to be In My Life by the Beatles and that's been bumped big time with a song called Malia by an Australian band, Spin Effects Gum. It's amazing. It's such a good song. Like I listen to it. What's it called? It's the sweetest. Like one of the lyrics is nothing. It's called Malia, M-A-R-L-I-Y-A. It's on Spotify and stuff. Um, It's a group of Indigenous girls, a choir that my friend Felix, who's in a band called the Cat Empire, you may have heard of, he writes music with Ollie from Cat Empire. And these, these teenage, you know, girls, these young women from up north, they sing these songs and they're so powerful. They sing about politics. They sing about indigenous rights but this song malia is is nothing is as sweet as you my friend and they just sing like birds and it's like and i've played it to people before and this is my funeral song and people go oh i don't want to think about your funeral i'm like yeah listen to this song it's awesome i'm hearing this in a funeral and i'm really like passionate about music and its capacity to to nourish us and i think you know i challenge anyone listening now to think about what funeral song you want and let someone know because if you don't tell people what song you want to play the funeral, they might play something crap. <laughs> so, it's true, right? Like, no, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't make people feel bad for choosing crap songs. But it's a stressful time planning a funeral. You know, I've been in that position before. As you said, Neil, if, if you can reflect the joy that that person lived and experienced in some way, as well as respecting on honouring the grief in that space, I think, yeah, it's a very powerful time to grieve. Yeah, there's a bit, of, a bit of homework for listeners. Get your funeral plan sorted now. <laughs> the music, don't worry about the rest of it, just the music. <laughs> One of the things, I've actually, I totally know what you mean because I've, I've thought of that as well. I have a, an iPhone notes document for almost everything, baby names, you know, songs for funerals as well. And I always wanted to go in a tree, like to be planted in a tree would be a really nice way to go rather than, you know, six feet under. Well, in a coffin, but oh my God, this is really taken. This is going off left field. But <laughs> apparently grow, or being put into a tree is actually illegal in most countries. <laughs> yeah, you can. Well, there's this there's a company that you can go in a pod and then they they plant you and then you grow into a tree. But it's not legal in most countries. So that sentence just moves on. <laughs> they plant you and then you go into a tree. Well, wouldn't that be nice? You go, oh, there's Neil, you know, 
growing fruit or something in the back garden. It'd be a nice way to remember me, you know? <laughs> oh, mental man. But uh, going back to some of the characters, Genevieve, so we've touched on John a lot. We've touched on uh, David, but, and Ivan as well. Everyone needs an Ivan, which is a great way to do it. Ivan, one of the great things he said is that, what was it? I think he said there's two signs. If you can pick up two things out of, let's say, five that the person around you is doing a little bit differently, that's usually a good telltale sign that maybe they need to have a chat. So I was a really, I thought that was a really important thing that you can play a role as a loved one or as a friend in and around. And you mentioned already about the power of friends, but also Jake, I'd love to talk about Jake. Jake was very, he was very raw, wasn't he? In terms of his own story. What was it like chatting to him? Cause you know, some of the conversations you had were, you know, quite hard hitting with Jake. Yeah. I mean, one thing I would share about, Jake's story is that, as I mentioned, he was often in war zones. So he'd be coming back from Afghanistan for a couple of weeks. He'd want to have his favorite Japanese. He'd want to go and have some whiskey, maybe go out dancing, and then he'd go back to Afghanistan. So, as friends and his family, who I'm very close with, it's really hard saying goodbye to someone knowing they're going back into such a dangerous environment. And so, um, yeah, Jake's got a very playful side and and we've always kind of connected on our ability to laugh in the way David and I do, I guess. But I remember going out once, I think we're having Mexican uh, in Fitzroy in Melbourne and Jake went to move his car so he wouldn't get a ticket. And I was talking to one of his mates and I said, oh, you know, Jake and I are filming at the moment. And his mate said, oh, filming what? And I said, oh, did you, Jake tell you I'm making a film with him? He's like, no. He goes, what's it called? I'm a happy, sad man. He goes, oh, I'm a happy, sad man. I've got bipolar. I said, oh, okay cool and he said oh why why is Jake in it I said oh we're just talking about life and this friend of his who's known him since he was a teenager said well that's the thing with Jake you know when you chat with Jake you're never going to go deep and talk about that sort of stuff and I said huh you might want to come and watch the film when it's finished Mm. Um, and it was interesting because his friend was saying oh Jake's the person you know you just wouldn't just wouldn't talk about that stuff with and I realized, oh, yeah, maybe I'm privy to these sort of conversations that Jake's not having with other people. Mm. Fast forward to the film being finished and the film being released. That guy came to the cinema and watched the film and stood up in the Q&A and talked about how grateful he was that when his father passed away, when, when this guy was a teenager, you know, Jake talks about literally dragging him out of his cupboard to take him to go and learn how to box or to take him for a run, take him to do things. So it's interesting because a lot of the time Jake says, you know, back in the day, maybe he wouldn't be the first to talk about this stuff, but he realized that actually sometimes you have to go first. And if you're out with your mates, maybe they're not going to bring up what's really going on for them, but you can lead by example. And Jake, I think has been a really great example of the fact that many people can live with PTSD without having to have gone to a war zone. Mm. You know, we can experience PTSD as he says, after a breakup in the family or with a loved one or after the death or even losing a job. It doesn't have to be PTSD related because you've been, you know, a soldier out Mm. in a battlefield. So yeah, Jake's capacity to engage a whole different type of audience and a whole type of man. Like Jake talks about growing up loving action movies and, you know, you know, he's, he, he kind of likes the idea of being a bit of a superhero, you know, he likes the idea of being kind of invincible, but as he explores in the film, like none of us are truly invincible. Mm. So yeah, Jake's story is really layered and complex and, as it happens, a few months ago, he said, I want to go back to Afghanistan. And it's 2021 while we're recording this. And I was kind of like, well, besides the fact that we're all in lockdown, I'm pretty sure he's not going to Afghanistan. 
But as it turns out, Jake is in Afghanistan right now. He arrived just before, literally like a week before the Taliban took over. He's had all this stuff happen the last few weeks. He's been detained by the Taliban this week. He's been released at the moment. He's over there shooting. His passion is sharing the stories of what are going on right now. So as his friend and his loved ones were watching on Instagram every day, you can follow him and see what's going on on the ground in Afghanistan right now. So yeah, Jake has a passion for humanitarian work and, and documenting truth and what's actually happening for a lot of people over there. So I'm really glad he's in the film and, and I love screening the film and him coming on the road and talking to audiences. Yeah, I think the, me, yeah. What, what, I, what we love about the Jake scene or scenes is, you know, as you're saying, John and David are quite extrovert in many ways. Whereas with Jake, he was like, it just showed such raw. He was so brave in the words that he was saying. And he could, you, you could tell because there's a lovely part where you actually say, you kind of reinforce like, this is great what you're doing. And you kind of compliment him and he, you can almost feel him accepting it after the first time because what he was doing was so brave. Just, yeah, just to see that unfold was amazing. So if, if he is listening, credit to you, Jake, you know, you're a very brave man. I think he added a really nice dynamic to how the story could be told from a different perspective, but still so powerful. Before we move on from Jake, Gary and I were chatting about this before. We have to talk about Jake's granny. I mean, she was just, Gary and I were saying, is it was it just us or does every granny look the same because when i saw his his granny i was like she's just my granny you know <laughs> what was it like me oh june i call her june but oh i just i just can't not smile when i think about june i call her june bug and um yeah i just became really close with her like i gotta tell you a quick story about how i met june is my last film, I'm 11, was touring around the world and I was lucky enough to travel to screenings. And I think I was in Brazil and I posted a photo that we had won an award there for the film. And someone commented, hey, nice dress, Cobber. And then, you know, I was in Europe somewhere at a film festival and someone commented, well done, looking good, Cobber. And I'm like, who is this person who's commenting on my photos? <laughs> and I saw that her last name was Jake's last name. And I wrote, hey, Jake, do you know this person, June? He's like, yeah, it's my grandma. She loves you. I'm like, what? Because, yeah, she follows you on, on Instagram, Facebook. And I'm like, yeah, she's always commenting on my photos. He goes, yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. Next time, I, next time you're back from Afghanistan, can I meet your grandma? He's like, yeah, sure. So I went over and met June and I had my camera, as always, with me. And that footage that you see in the film where she's playing farm town on her computer and talking to me about her Facebook friends, I just was like, oh, June's got to be in the film. She became like a surrogate grandma to me. And her relationship with Jake was really beautiful, obviously, when he's in conflict zones. And she's a fairly homebound, you know, grandma who can't travel. She connected with Jake over Facebook in the same way that you guys might connect with your relatives overseas. They were in touch all the time. And um, even into her 90s, she was such a tech whiz. So, yeah, it was a really beautiful thing to see their, their um, relationship. I really love showing relationships across generations in my films. Um, I love old people. I love young people. And I love dogs. So there's usually quite a lot of that going on in my movies. Oh, she was lovely. It was a real, it was a real nod to every grandmother out there. Gosh, we love you all. They just play such an important role in all our lives as role models. And, yeah, I mean... I wish we all had a June as well. <laughs> she was just so good. And what about Grant? I was going to say, Neil, that you and I, all of us, we've given the listener a bit of homework to choose a funeral song as soon as possible. But I also would encourage anyone listening, if you are lucky enough 
to still have a grandparent alive, give them a call like today or tonight, depending on where you are. I no longer have any grandparents living, but I have some older people in my life, including my friend, Tony Coco, who sunbakes every day on the beach. He's in his nineties. He's also really, really fit. He thinks I'm way too white. When I put sunscreen on, he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? He's Italian and he's amazing. And I'm going to call him today because I haven't called him for a while. And he loves it when I call and I love speaking with him. So another little uh, piece of homework, if I can use that word, is, is, is call an older person that you love because I bet they'll be stoked to hear from you. That's cool. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah, there's, there's a dog park in Bondi and Mark's Park and there's a lovely man from eastern europe who's i think he's 92 and oh my god i can't remember his name but i've I've spoken to him a couple of times and he's been married to his wife for over 75 years i think he told me and he's like 92 he's been married since they were teenagers and he goes around there every single day sits on the bench and check this out for an amazing story he met some english guy there one day and chatted to him and he told about his daughter had written a book and the guy's like oh that's fascinating i'd love to have a copy of that book so anyway, they were chatting for an hour, I think he said, and he left. And every day he, he's, when I bumped into him most recently, he had the book with him and he's brought the book back with him to the park every day until he bumps back into this guy so he could give him the book. And I was just like, oh my gosh, what an amazing story. Oh, lovely guy, man. So, so Grant was the last one, Sully, the only character we haven't really, we actually spoke about Grant with a little pilot episode and Sully actually mentioned Grant like didn't mention his name, but he met, we were just discussing like how small things can make a big difference. And so I had mentioned how it was a guy in Bondi who done this, went for this one wave. And so when I was watching the documentary, I was like, oh, that's the guy Sully was talking about. But he was a very cool, like one of the things my, my girlfriend said to me this morning, she's like, I absolutely loved it when he goes. So the police came, they picked me up. I managed to escape. I ran away. They caught me again. <laughs> back in van. I was just laughing, thinking, what a cool story, just an escape. <laughs> like, it just took it so, not in a stride, but the way he explained it was very much like, I feel that's how I would react, like when he's in, in the mental ward and I'll try to talk to him. And he was just like, if you're not here, get, take me out. I'm not interested. And it wasn't until like those f- next few days that he really started to accept it. So I thought his story was cool. Did you mention, sorry, did you, have you mentioned already how you came across, how you met, oh, you meant Instagram. Is that what you said? Instagram? Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. So these, I take it you're still in touch with Grant, yeah? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Grant, I mean, all the guys are like family now. And I, I, mo- I actually moved to Bondi, you know, partly because Grant, every time I'd go up there and film him, I was like, oh my gosh, like I just love being here. I love being near the water. And friends of mine in Melbourne were like, what are you doing living in Bondi? <laughs> and I'm like, I just love the ocean. Like I just, I didn't know I loved the ocean so much. And, and I don't surf, but I go down there and having my legs in the water every day and every night, it's just such a gift. And so Grant through most of COVID has been in New Zealand where he's from and his folks are there. So we haven't had him in Australia, but he's actually gone over to Norway now. His partner is from there. So he had waited about a year and a half to get back over to see her, but he will be back in Australia. And yeah, when lockdowns open, we're going to be yeah going back on the road with the film and, and doing more public screenings. Because as much as we love people being able to watch it virtually at home, what we really want is to bring people when it's safe back together again in rooms to watch it as a community. Funnily enough, I'm looking at the time right now because my last film, I'm 11, even though it first premiered 10 years ago, it's still screening around the world. And there's a screening 
in Arkansas in the US right now of I'm 11 and I have to do a Q&A or don't have to, I am doing a Q&A with a bunch of young people at a peace festival any minute, which I have to jump onto, which is, it's just a reminder to me that, you know, when you make films that can connect with audiences, you know, in the way that I hope mine do, they live for a long time. And I really hope Happy Sad Man continues to screen in five, 10, 20 years. And hopefully in 20 years, we look back and we think about the stigma around mental health that exists right now. And we'll look at it in the same way that we go, what? People used to smoke on aeroplanes? Like, so <laughs> weird. Like, hopefully we'll look back and see that, you know, it's true, right? Isn't it weird to think people smoked on aeroplanes? Yeah, it's weird. So hopefully we look back and think, what? People used to be nervous about speaking to psychologists really like hopefully that that self-stigma that a lot of people feel and the stigma in the community is reduced but are you going to log on to the screening right now oh yeah. my god that's, that's pretty cool we're like oh my god we're disrupting a streaming of the actual movie that we're just talking about <laughs> no no it's another it's my last film I'm, like, 11. I'm, 11. I'm 11 i'm 11 sorry but it's kind of yeah it's a blast to think that there's still people around the world that that are like watching it perfect thanks guys awesome just good, good luck. See you <laughs> Don't forget to follow us on all the social media channels, including Instagram and Twitter, at These Lands Are Mental. And if you do have a topic or a guest or subject that you want us to talk about, please do get in touch and send in your suggestions. Thanks for joining us on today's show. As mentioned at the beginning, if you are struggling with mental health, please do seek further assistance. Here's who you can get support from. Lifeline, Beyond Blue, Fitzier, and the Black Dog Institute.